This is Guns and Butter. When one comes to the realization that the United States is supporting both sides, one then understands that this is not an internal conflict. It is a war of aggression, which consists in destabilizing a nation state, uh, implementing regime change, and ultimately also establishing an American colony which previously was under the hegemony of the French Republic. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michel Chosarovsky. Today's show, The War on Mali. Who are the major actors? Michel Chosarovsky is professor of economics and director of the Center for Research on Globalization based in Montreal, Quebec. He is the author of The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, and America's War on Terrorism. Today we discuss the French intervention in Mali within the broad historical context of post-World War II geopolitics. Who is really recolonizing the African continent? The history, economy, and natural resources of Mali, covert war, Al Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, the Tuareg, a pattern of using so called terrorist organizations to carry out U.S. foreign policy, the early 1980s Canadian study of Mali, the IMF and World Bank reforms, and finally the hostage crisis at an Algerian natural gas complex. Michel Chosodovsky, welcome. I'm delighted to be on the program. France has sent troops to Mali in northwest Africa, as well as having conducted airstrikes over its former colony. In March of 2012, there was a military coup d'etat in Mali. Let's start with the coup of 2012. What do we know about this coup? Well, the coup was led by a junior officer, it was an act of rebellion within the armed forces against the government, leading to the toppling of that government and the appointment of uh, a, a provisional government. It's unclear as to who was behind this coup. The, the author of the coup, the young captain of 39 years old, um, career military officer was trained in the United States. One suspects that this could have been a U.S.-sponsored coup, but we have no firm evidence to that effect. Uh, what occurred is uh, essentially a structure of instability, namely the appointment of a transitional president, the duly elected president, stepped down, and a new government was appointed. So it was, in essence, regime change. First, we have the French leading an intervention in Libya and now Mali. How is this military intervention going to affect France? And why do you believe France is intervening? Well, let me put it perhaps in a broader historical perspective. Um, French West Africa was, 
from the turn of the you know of the 20th century starting in the early 1900s was a tremendous vast territory extending across the continent um it was not the best territories of the african continent which went to the british but nonetheless from a geopolitical standpoint we're talking about an empire and that whole region was in the french sphere of influence it was called the french sudan now upon achieving independence in the late 50s early 60s bali got its independence in 1960 these countries essentially remained within the french sphere of influence they uh, they had a common currency system which was the cfa franc which was tied to the french franc and uh, essentially france was the neo colonial power the economies of these countries didn't change fundamentally mali continued to export cotton um through a state enterprise which was called compagnie malienne des textiles which replaced the the former colonial company which was called compagnie française des textiles but in effect it was uh, essentially a shift in name the french still controlled ultimately um the the mainstay of the malian economy now recent uh, reports have suggested that france and i'm talking about critical progressive reports uh pointing to france's military intervention in mali what they are saying is that now france is recolonizing its former territories this interpretation i think has to be analyzed and questioned france has been the major colonial power in that region and starting i would say in the, in the 1980s and perhaps even the early 90s french influence started to be eroded essentially to the benefit of the united states of america and that happened when the cfa franc collapsed in the early 90s it also was the result of uh, the imposition of macroeconomic reforms under the imf and the world bank and increasingly france's um influence and colonial hegemony was was eroded and questioned and countries in west africa started to establish much closer ties with the usa in other words when we say this is a this is a reconquest or this is a recolonization of africa that region has always been under colonial influence but what is now occurring is that that colonial influence is gradually moving from france to a new colonial power which is the united states of america and unless we understand that logic we won't understand what's going on in mali um uh, it's a historical process it's not limited to africa whereby the united states takes over the colonies of other european powers it was the basis of the spanish american war in the late 19th century uh where the philippines was transferred to the united states 
it was to some extent also tied into um, World War II, where the United States took over um, countries which were within the Japanese sphere of influence, not to mention the transfer of Indonesia, which was a Dutch colony, into the hands of of the United States, essentially as a proxy state. But uh, with regard to France, France lost its uh, colonies in Asia, Indochina, namely Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, uh, which today are de facto uh, U.S. proxy states, they're colonies. Um, it's within the U.S. sphere of influence. French is no longer spoken. More recently, in the 1990s, Rwanda, which was not a French colony, but which in, in the wake of its independence became inserted within the French sphere of influence. It was a Francophone country. It had a very close bilateral ties with France. From one day to the next, following the, the Rwandan genocide and the support granted by uh, the United States to, to the insurrection led by Paul Kagame, trained at Fort Levensworth. Rwanda is now becoming an English-speaking African country, and it is within the U.S. sphere of influence. The same thing goes for the Congo. When um, Laurent Désiré Kabila, who was a, a leftist, a militant in, in the 1960s. Uh, he was brought back. He led the insurrection against the Mobutu government. He installed a government. Who was he supported by? The United States of America. And essentially what is happening is an encroachment uh, of, uh, of French colonial territories in Africa by an upcoming uh, colonial power because historically, of course, uh, Africa had been divided up at the Berlin Conference in the late 19th century between the various European powers. America was not part of that, of that redivision of Africa. So bear in mind now that the United States is increasing its sphere of influence in North Africa. Of course, Libya is it's already uh, established. Um, but it's also within the other countries, Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia. Um, there was a, a plan to establish a secret U.S. military base in southern Algeria right at the border with Mali. And, uh, in fact, it was being built by, by Kellogg, Brown and & Roots, and, uh, a subsidiary of Halliburton. And that program was scrapped uh, resulting from opposition within Algeria to establishing a U.S. military presence on Algerian soil. But uh, essentially, the, the U.S. agenda is to confiscate that whole area, okay, extending right across the continent from uh, the Sudan, through the Sahelian Belt, uh, Egypt, uh, Libya, uh, the Central African Republic, Chad, uh, Mali, Mauritania, uh, that whole belt is now gradually um, being taken over by the United States. Uh, we see the deployment of AFRICOM, U.S. AFRICOM in, in Africa, the sending in of, 
of special forces into 35 African countries. And when we see these actions by France, um, we must understand that it's not France which is conquering uh, Africa. It is the United States using France as a proxy and the result of which will be the weakening of France within French Africa. Well, Michelle, I was going to ask you, why would, why would France help the U.S. take over its former colonies? Well, I think that there's several lines of, of understanding of that question. First of all, uh, in, in recent years, the United States has has had an overriding role in influencing political appointments uh, in the French Republic. Um, I think that the presidency of Jacques Chirac was, in essence, was a watershed. Sarkozy is a U.S. appointee, was a U.S. appointee. Um, and, and there's a whole background behind it. His, his family links to the CIA, his stepfather who was a major uh, um, CIA official, and uh, his support of U.S. interests. The same thing is true of Bernard Kushner, with foreign minister um, under the Sarkozy government. And it seems that his successor, François Hollande, is ultimately also serving U.S. interests. But I should mention that... Um, they are serving U.S. interests, but at the same time, they are anxious to share the spoils of war. Um, Northern Mali is an area of tremendous wealth. Okay? These are wealthy countries. They're, they're wealthy countries in terms of resources. They're resource economies. The Congo is a resource economy with minerals, with, with oil and, and um, strategic metals. Mali is a major gold producer. There's uranium in Niger. Uh, the uranium is controlled by France. Uh, the United States wants to control those areas. There's oil, there's natural gas, there's gold. Uh, but at the same time, it's, it's a geopolitical belt across the entire continent. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, The War on Mali. Who are the major actors? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What was the ancient civilization in Mali? Was it a center of trade? If we go back in history, of course, Mali is an ancient civilization. It was the crossroads of the Trans-Saharan trade, linking um, uh, the Mediterranean to West and Southern Africa, there was also an east-west trade. Mali had trade with, with China from across the continent and then, and then across, the, across the Indian Ocean. And uh, it has a long history. It's, Timbuktu was a historical city. They said it was paved in gold. It was the center of learning. The University of Timbuktu was one of the, the earliest... Um, one of the earlier universities of the Muslim world, of Muslim scholarship. And so that is the background. 
first of all, Mali is not an independent sovereign country. And uh, it is still within the French sphere of influence as far as the civilian administration is concerned, uh, the government. Uh, these are very highly educated civil servants, many of them trained in France. Uh, but I would suspect that now the military is much more influenced by the United States. And in the, in the course of the last, uh, I would say in the course of the last 20 years, uh, 30 years, sorry, since the early 80s, um, these countries, Mali in particular, have been under the brunt of IMF World Bank reform, subjected to the usual uh, doses of economic medicine with, uh, with emphasis on developing the export economy at the detriment of local production, this is also a country which has endemic famines. It's not to say that they can't produce food. They can. The, the Niger Valley is a, is a, a tremendous waterway where you, you can cultivate and feed your own population. But in effect, uh, the Niger Valley is used for cash crops. Cotton is Mali's uh, major export. Um, and... Uh, all those factors, the, the economic factors, the geopolitical um, inroads of the United States uh, have, on the one hand, they've impoverished these countries beyond bounds, but at the same time, they've weakened the ties which, which, uh, which West Africa had with, uh, with the French Republic. Has there been a covert war underway in Mali for some time? Well, precisely. Um, I, I think that if we want to understand uh, the logic of these insurrections, we have to know who is behind them. Um, we have several powerful actors uh, which are supporting the insurrection in, in northern Mali. Um, as far as the Islamists are concerned, the so-called Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, which is one of the, which is leading the, the war against the Malian armed forces, it is known and documented that Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, Akim, is supported by the Gulf monarchies, uh, a heritage of, of uh, Wahhabi Salafist uh, ideology uh, funded by Qatar and Saudi Arabia and supported covertly by the CIA. That's something which is well documented that Al-Qaeda-affiliated organizations are supported covertly by the CIA going back to the Soviet-Afghan war. Uh, essentially, what is happening is that Al-Qaeda in Islamic Maghreb is creating conditions of destabilization and sectarian divisions within these countries. And the irony is that while they're supported covertly by uh, U.S. intelligence, but also French intelligence is involved as well, uh, they are also fighting against uh, these French forces which have been sent in. So that uh, we're, we're, we're in a very complex uh, situation. There's an insurrection in the north. Uh, it's the Tuareg insurrection. But then there's also this Islamists. 
And we're led to believe that this is a civil war, but in effect, it's not a civil war. It is an insurrection which is um, led by Islamic groups, and those Islamic groups are supported covertly by uh, by the Western powers, and particularly the United States, and to a lesser extent, France. And that kind of uh, involvement of the United States in supporting al-Qaeda in different regions of intervention is, is well understood. They're doing the same thing in, in, in Somalia. However, I should mention that al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb is still an entity in its own right. The United States probably would call this an intelligence asset because they, they will fund it covertly through the Emirates, uh, through the Wahhabi missions in Saudi Arabia, through Qatar. They will not necessarily be directly involved. But that form of support uh, is well understood. Now, uh, interestingly enough, in the wake of the, of the war on Libya, the so-called Libya Islamic Fighting Group, uh, which is an al-Qaeda-affiliated organization trained in Afghanistan in CIA camps, and that's well documented. Its leaders were, in fact, in Afghanistan, and uh, the CIA did, did at one time support them. Uh, but we also know that the Libya Islamic Fighting Group, during the NATO-led operations, were, in fact, the foot soldiers of the Western Military Alliance, uh, which were used to topple Gaddafi. And we know also that they were in liaison uh, with, uh, with NATO, that they had, including, they even had British special forces on the ground helping them, advising them. So that the Libya Islamic Fighting Group is, well, they are an instrument of the Western Military Alliance. They were subsequently also sent to Syria, uh, acting as terrorists within the Free Syrian Army. So they're trained mercenaries. And now we find contingencies of Libya Islamic Fighting Group within the ranks of, of the various... Well, the, it's not only Akim. There's also another organization called Ansar Edin, uh, which, is, which is also a jihadist group. And, and these mercenaries then integrate these formations in in Algeria and Mali, but they are financed, supported covertly by, uh, by the United States through various means. In this case, it was uh, even documented by the French media that Qatar was providing support to the Islamic uh, rebels in Algeria and northern Mali. Yes. Now, but weren't the Tuareg, the, the people from uh, northern Mali, weren't they supporters of Colonel Gaddafi during the NATO attack on Libya? Are the Tuareg in northern Mali now militarized due to the Libyan war? My understanding is that the, the Tuaregs, I mean, the Tuaregs have been marginalized. Within Mali, they've been marginalized. They're nomadic um, uh, people which move across borders, and they, they have never had, they never really had any rights within Mali. And certainly there were Tuaregs who then joined this movement. But I think that since then, 
the Tuaregs have, their movement has been infiltrated by the jihadists, and this has given a different flavor to the, to the nature of this, of this insurrection. Um, I'm not entirely clear as to the evolving relationship between the, the Tuareg movement on the one hand and the Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. In some regards, they've joined forces, and in other regards, uh, they are in conflict. I see. So, but then there is a pattern of using clearly terroristic organizations, even those listed as so by the U.S. State Department, to carry out U.S. foreign policy. Well, absolutely. The the Al-Qaeda-affiliated organizations are supported by, they're supported by the United States. And we've seen that even in Iraq, okay? When we, when we saw Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Now, Al-Qaeda in Iraq was, uh, was a jihadist organization which didn't even exist uh, prior to the U.S. invasion. But then it was created. Um, you had the, the Al-Zakawi phenomenon, uh, Al Zarqawi was uh, was ultimately killed, and then you had a you had subsequent uh, formation of Al Qaeda in Iraq, and um, I, I should mention another thing which I think is very important. In 2005, um, John Negroponte uh, was sent to Iraq uh, as ambassador. Uh, as U.S. ambassador, his main task during a very short stint of less than two years was to set up the Shia and Kurdish death squads, which would uh, essentially be used to commit atrocities very much on what was called the Salvador option in Latin America. It's Negro Ponte had been in charge of the death squads in Honduras as well as the Contras in Nicaragua in, in the early 1980s. And he was sent to Iraq to set up the Iraqi death squads. And, and it's fairly well documented as to the role of these death squads. But one of the persons on his team uh, was Robert Stephen Ford, a senior U.S. State Department official who joined him as he was more or less number two in, in the Negroponte team. He joined him at the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad in 2005. Um, he's a man who, uh, who uh, speaks fluent Arabic uh, and Turkish, and he made the contacts with the various groups, the Mahdi Army and the Badr um, group and so on in Iraq. And he was then appointed in 2006. That was uh, his stint in in uh, Iraq was relatively short. It was about two years from 2004 to 2006. In 2006, he was appointed to Algeria as ambassador. And I, I mean, the matter needs to be investigated. But the fact is that um, Robert Stephen Ford was appointed to the Negroponte team in 2004-2005. Then he goes to uh, Algeria 
as uh, ambassador at a time when the various jihadist groups started to integrate. And it was, it was at that moment that we see the emergence of al-Qaeda in, in the Maghreb, which was essentially the coalescence of several uh, jihadist groups and jihadist groups which had existed historically in, in Algeria for quite some time. So that to what extent Robert Stephen Ford played a role in pushing for the, the integration of what was previously called uh, the GSPC, le, in French it's the Groupe Salafiste pour la Prédication et le Combat, uh, it was uh, it was something which which existed from the 1970s. It was a Salafist group, and then it it more or less got integrated into this Al Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, which was really far more of a CIA supported entity than than previously, and it coincided with the appointment of Robert Stephen Ford. I should say Robert Stephen Ford then became the ambassador to Syria, okay? I was about ready the, to mention that. Yes. He was number two man at the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. Then in 2006, he goes to, uh, to Algeria. And then he goes back to Baghdad in 2008. And in 2010, he's sent to Syria. And it, he also played a, a similar role as a liaison with the Free Syrian Army. Now, so that you have, an, uh, you have a group of State Department officials, there was another person on the Negro Ponte team who then went to, when, when uh, Robert Stephen Ford was, was reassigned back to Baghdad, then they appointed another member of the same team to go and succeed Robert Stephen Ford as ambassador in Algeria. So what I'm saying is that the, the position of ambassador, of U.S. ambassador in Algeria, is very crucial in in, um, you know, in spearheading these various um, intelligence operations. And Robert Stephen Ford, I, I don't doubt that he must have played a very important role in Algeria in the, you know, in the two-year stint between 2006-2008. We saw the emergence of al-Qaeda in, in Maghreb from, from various other organizations which, which existed previously. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, The War on Mali. Who are the major actors? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What can you tell us about the study you did for the Canadian government in the early 1980s? You spent a lot of time in, in Mali then and wrote a 400-page report. Well, when this crisis erupted, I recalled my my earlier work that I had done in Mali, and and um, at the time, uh, the Canadian government, uh, which was actually quite supportive of Mali's uh, development projects, they had an agreement with with my university, the University of Ottawa, uh, to set up a team of of uh, analysts, economists. It was with the economics department. And I went to Mali essentially to, to write a report on the broad uh, policy issues, but it was, it was extremely broad in terms of reference, uh, uh, agriculture, natural resources, policy, monetary policy, etc. But ironically, I arrived in Mali 
uh, at the time when there was um, what they called a donors conference, okay? <laughs> and I actually, I went to this donor conference. I was part of the Canadian delegation. I just sat at the back of the room and listened. But the thing is that at that time, um, in the early, it was in the early 80s, uh, they were already imposing these deadly reforms. And, and that was already constraining any kind of, of, uh, of sovereign national uh, project that they could be formulating. And I look back on that and I say, well, that really is the watershed. Uh, it, it's the beginning of, of a different form of colonialism under the brunt of IMF World Bank reforms, whether the IMF and the World Bank come in and they, they essentially decide what, what the country should be doing, how it should be spending its money, what sectors it should be supporting, and so on and so forth. Uh, and so the whole issue of sovereignty is there. And then I returned uh, subsequently the, the following year, that was in 1983, and um, I uh, was on a mission, again, it was for the Canadian International Development Agency, to study the various regions and to come up with an assessment of what was happening, and then also to advise the Canadian, the Canadian government on, the, on avenues for development aid. Now, what happened is I went up, I traveled a uh, across the desert up to, at the time, the, there was no road, and it was, it was during the dry seasons that literally the, the riverbed, the Niger riverbed, was dried up. It was in a Toyota Land Cruiser, so we, we went up the riverbed. We got lost in the desert and ultimately arrived at Timbuktu at something like 2 in the morning. And um, there... Uh, I subsequently visited other parts of the country, but I was, first of all, I was struck by the fact that um, this legendary city of Timbuktu was a multi-ethnic crossroads. There was still a lot of trade going on. Uh, uh, I met with the Tuaregs. Uh, then I went into neighboring villages and I looked at irrigation projects and so on along the Niger Valley. On the way back from uh, Timbuktu down to Mopti, which is close, in fact, to one of the cities which were and until recently held by the, by the Al-Qaeda uh, insurgents, I, I stopped and I, I spoke to people there, school teachers and so on, and I was particularly concerned by the fact that there was a very severe drought and uh, I actually met up with a World Bank mission. There were a mission of nine people. I was all alone with the driver. And, and then I, I spoke to, it was uh, actually, it was, um, it was a secondary school teacher. We sat down and he explained to me that this whole region, the food situation was tremendously precarious. Okay. And it still is today, even worse. And he said, he said, we don't have any more food stocks. And if there's not going to be any kind of a, of a, you know, a shift in, in rainfall, we can expect the worst. And, and I talked to farmers and subsequently I got back to Ottawa and I, I wrote a four-page report and I warned... A four-page report? 
Well, I, it, this was an initial report before I actually, I actually drafted the big 400-page report. This was a four-page memorandum, which I submitted to the Canadian International Development Agency. And I said, in substance, I said, if nothing is done, this region will be affected by famine. And uh, I guess a few months later, it happened. That was the great famine of the early 80s, 1983-84. Was that famine exacerbated by the IMF and World Bank requirements? Oh, absolutely. For them to, absolutely. Like, to, to grow but, export crops instead of subsistence crops? Absolutely. Now, let, let me explain to you what happened to the region. This is a region a little bit south of Timbuktu on the Niger Valley, um, essentially what happened is they, if they run out of, of food, it's not that the food is not available, it's simply they can't afford it, and then the food stocks that the villagers will build up when they're depleted, well, they've, they've got no more food. And, and what happened is that people ran out of food, but they had nowhere to go. They couldn't go further south where there was food, where the climate was less... Uh, uh, devastating, and they didn't have money to, to, to pay for transportation out of that region because you needed to go either by, by car, by bus or something, and, and the distances were still pretty large distances. It's a big, big area. And so they, they were landlocked, uh, literally landlocked in, in the sense that they didn't have the possibility of, of leaving that area. And um, what I had noticed in my, in my study of the agricultural system is that all the resources of water, irrigation, and uh, uh, extension by the, the Ministry of Agriculture, it all went to the export crops. Cotton was one of the major crops. And uh, they made a distinction between what was called, in French they called it, uh, agriculture encadré means essentially uh, encadré means it means structured agriculture. Structured agriculture means that it's agriculture which has an infrastructure, which has uh, water irrigation, um, support from the from the government in terms of seeds and 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 farm inputs and so on. And then the other area which lies outside that was called the gray zone, okay? It, it was known by the farmers as the gray zone, and uh, la zone grise. And then I, of course, I went to la zone grise because la zone grise was all over the place. Outside of the areas of, of, of uh, let's say, structured agriculture, uh, agriculture en cadre, you had the gray zone, and I talked to people in the gray zone, but all those people were relying on rainfall. Uh, they didn't have any support. You know, they were cultivating uh, crops for food, but they were obviously in a very precarious situation. And then, of course, the World Bank would come in and they would plow money into the areas of structured agriculture, agriculture en cadre, and which were also supporting the export of cotton, which was the mainstay of, of Mali's economy. So that was the background. It, it was uh, 
the dichotomy that existed within the agricultural system, the food distribution, the fact that at the same time the, the World Bank was ordering the deregulation of the grain market, which means that you, that you don't allow price controls over essential food staples. And that meant that in areas, in the semi-arid areas of the north, where, you know, where there was little rainfall or where people couldn't produce enough food, well, then they couldn't buy it because the price had just literally gone fly high. And when I submitted my report, the, the reaction, first of all, at the well, it was a it was a mission. It, it was not a full embassy which existed in Bamako. It was called a bureau d'ambassade of the Canadian government. Well, the reaction said, "Well, no, there's plenty of food. They've got plenty of food." Uh, you know, when I said there's going to be a famine, and in a sense, he was right. There was plenty of food, but it was all stocked up by uh, you know by by private merchants and so on, and and uh, people didn't have. The, the purchasing power to buy that food and they couldn't produce it because they were in the gray zone and they and they didn't have the resources to to cultivate and and the irrigation had all gone to to certain projects in the in the Niger Valley which were geared towards uh, towards export crops so i i certainly you know i certainly lived through that period and became very much aware of how uh, this country was fragile. I haven't been back to Mali, but I can visualize the regions which are subjected to these devastating economic policies and how they impinge on, on uh, you know, on the structure of government, on on social ethnic divisions. Uh, because Mali is a tremendous melting pot of different groups. And uh, I sense there were divisions, but at the same time, there was, a lot of, uh, there was a lot of solidarity between the groups. And uh, when you met the Tuaregs right in the middle of the desert uh, coming in, they would always, you know, they'd always greet you and so on. <laughs> so that kind of background, I think, is very important. Uh, Mali went through several major famines, and um, uh, the early 70s, 1973, was a major famine, which was the object of a lot of discussion and debate among among economists and social scientists. Uh, but that famine then recurred 10 years later in, in 83-84, and I, I've just consulted the the World Bank reports on Mali, they don't talk about famine anymore. They talk about food insecurity, okay? <laughs> food insecurity. So they, they acknowledge that there's certain areas, parts of the country uh, in Mali, which are uh, affected by food insecurity. And of course, then they send in the, the World Food Program to give them food or whatever. But in effect, uh, the life in this country in Mali is very, very fragile, and uh, I think it's in that particular context of a very fragile economy, impoverished, uh, very low standard of living, uh, subjected to uh, to years of colonization and subsequent uh, 
actions by by the Britain Woods institutions, you can see how it is now evolving towards uh, uh, a re well, it's not a recolonization because it's already colonized, but it's a new phase of colonization. And as I mentioned, uh, it's also the growing role of the United States to the detriment of France, to the detriment of France as a major power in West Africa. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, The War on Mali. Who are the major actors? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What about the hostage crisis at an Algerian natural gas complex that was seized, it was claimed, in retaliation for the French war in Mali? How does the hostage crisis in Algeria relate to the intervention in Mali, or does it? Well, it certainly does. This operation was coordinated by Mokhtar Belmokhtar, who is leader of an affiliated al-Qaeda group called the Mass Brigade, or those who sign with blood. And uh, the statement was by Belmokhtar, actually was a kidnapping, it, it was the taking of hostages, that this was a retaliation to the actions of the French forces against uh, al-Qaeda operatives in, uh, in northern Mali. And in fact, what they had requested was negotiations for the release of the hostages, and those negotiations were never implemented. The Algerian uh, forces came in and started bombing the complex with, uh, with helicopters and so on. Now, I think what is very important to understand is that Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb is, in fact, very much linked up to the Al-Qaeda network. And the leader of this particular operation, Mokhtar Belmokhtar, was actually recruited in the late 80s, early 90s by the CIA uh, to wage the covert war in Afghanistan. This is uh, something which is on record, and the Council on Foreign Relations actually acknowledges that, and I quote, that most of the Akim, Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb, major leaders are believed to have trained in Afghanistan during the 79 to 89 war against the Soviets as part of a group of North African volunteers known as the Afghan Arabs that returned to the region and radicalized Islamist movements in the years that followed, unquote. Now, it just so happens that the leader who led this uh, terrorist attack against the BP Statoil Sonatrach Aminas Gasfield complex was trained in Afghanistan at a time when the CIA and its uh, Pakistani affiliate the inter-services intelligence were providing support to the recruitment, training, and arming of terrorist brigades. Uh, I'm not suggesting that this necessarily implies or involves uh, a CIA connection, but the history of those organizations is important in analyzing the nature of uh, 
both U.S. as well as French intervention in that region. The other dimension is that within al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, you also have fighters from the Libya Islamic Fighting Group. Uh, in fact, that there's a very close relationship between those two groups since 2007, and um, weapons have come in from the Libyan side through the participation of the Libya Islamic Fighting Group. But we recall, and this is a bitter irony, we recall that the Libya Islamic Fighting Group was actually supported by NATO in the 2011 uh, war on Libya. So that there you have a situation where the Libya Islamic Fighting Group is collaborating with Akim and is involved, possibly involved in a terrorist attack in Algeria. And at the same time, the Libya Islamic Fighting Group is supported by, by NATO or was supported by NATO. And we know that Libya Islamic Fighting Group mercenaries are also involved in Syria. Now, another dimension of this is that we know that uh, al-Qaeda in the Maghreb, jihadists uh, who are active not only in Algeria, but also in Mali, particularly in northern Mali, uh, not only were they trained by the CIA in Afghanistan, but more recently confirmed by the French newspaper Le Canard Enchaîné, uh, in a June 2012 report, Qatar, which is a staunch ally of the United States, has in fact been funding various terrorist entities in Mali, including the Salafist group Ansar Eddin, which works hand-in-glove with uh, al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. So there you have a situation where uh, covert funding is provided to terrorist organizations, from an ally of the United States, and these terrorist organizations are involved in attacks on facilities of British Petroleum involving a hostage uh, crisis and a subsequent intervention by the Algerian forces resulting in, in deaths which were not, and that the press has confirmed it, were not related to the the actual hostage-taking in the first place. These were not executions. They were actual casualties from the bombings of the Algerian helicopters. And isn't it also a fact that this gas complex in Algeria is right on the border with Libya? Absolutely. The, the gas complex is located on the Libya-Algeria border, and it is also very close, actually, to the border with Tunisia. But it's very close. It's right slap on the border. And, and consequently, um, within the terrorist uh, brigade which attacked the gas complex, it is reported that there were mercenaries from a number of countries, and uh, one suspects that within that group there were uh, members of the Libya Islamic Fighting Group. Michel, what else do you think that people need to understand about the current situation in Mali with regard to the French intervention? It looks like other countries now, uh, the British, the Americans, they're talking about drones, sending drones in. What do you think it's essential for people to uh, understand about the current situation there? Well, I, I think we have to essentially connect the dots of 
different actions waged throughout the African continent and uh, and even beyond in the Middle East as well. So that at the same time, if we go back to the to the nineties, the instability prevailing in Cote d'Ivoire with the displacement of of the government also indicates the encroachment by the United States on countries which were within the French sphere of influence. Cote d'Ivoire was a country which had a significant French community uh, with French interests and ultimately through successive uh, coups and military interventions which, which have taken place over the years, that country is increasingly uh, within the U.S. sphere of influence. So that these attempts to implement regime change or to topple governments, or to fun, finance insurgencies have been occurring in different parts of the continent for the last 20 years. Uh, we have to address the issue of Rwanda. Uh, we have to address the issue of Somalia. Uh, what happened in the Sudan, which was also an, an insurgency supported by the United States. Uh, the the secession of of Sudan, uh, the creation of Southern Sudan, and uh, the the wars in the Congo, which have led to seven million deaths. People don't even know about these wars. They don't know about the wars in the Sudan. They don't know about the wars in the Congo, and the the millions of people, literally, who died as a result of these wars. And these wars were portrayed as civil wars. They weren't civil wars. They were in insurrections funded by Western powers, particularly United States and Britain. Uh, that was true as far as Rwanda is concerned. It was also true as far as Sudan is concerned. Uh, and the Congo as, as well was a, a U.S.-supported insurrection. Well, it's a reconquest of Africa, but under a different colonial agenda. It's more of an Anglo-American colonial agenda. The other colonial powers have been shoved out. Now, Take Mozambique. Mozambique was a colony of Portugal. Well, it just it joined the Commonwealth. Now, what historical links does Mozambique, which was a Portuguese-speaking country, have with, with Britain? None. None whatsoever. They joined the Commonwealth. Uh, Rwanda has become a country which now, where English is an official language. The university functions in English. The, the professors are trained in, in the United States and Britain. In 2009, they decided to have all the high schools operate only in English. That means all the elites, by definition, will, will be English-speaking. I think what, what characterizes the crisis in Mali is that the insurrection, namely Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, is supported covertly by the United States, and at the same time, the United States is waging a war against al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb by bringing in French troops and mobilizing those French troops to attack the same insurgents which they themselves are supporting. And when one comes to the realization that the United States is supporting both sides, 
one then understands that this is not an internal conflict. It is a war of aggression, which consists in destabilizing a nation-state, implementing regime change, and ultimately also establishing an American colony which previously was under the hegemony of the French Republic. Essentially, what I want to say is that you have several sides of this conflict, and and all sides are supported by the same, (laughs) are supported by the United States, either covertly or overtly. You know, the, the, the historical background is important because when you when you impoverish a country through macroeconomic reform, you set the stage for civil war, essentially. I saw it in Rwanda as well. You send in the IMF and the World Bank, and then you have a civil war, okay? But you trigger the civil war. The same thing happened in Yugoslavia, okay? Successive macroeconomic reforms in the 1980s, creating ethnic tensions, uh, impoverishing people, and then you start funding the insurgencies. So you, you can find many historical analogies of this. And it's true, it's true for many other countries as well. Michel Chosodowski, thank you very much. Delighted to be on the program. I've been speaking with Michel Chosodowski. Today's show has been The War on Mali. Who are the major actors? Michel Chosodowski is director of the Center for Research on Globalization, based in Montreal, Quebec. The global research website, globalresearch.ca, publishes news articles, commentary, background research, and analysis on a broad range of issues. Michel Chosodowski is the author of The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, and America's War on Terrorism, as well as numerous articles. He is a co-editor and contributor to a new anthology, The Global Economic Crisis, The Great Depression of the 21st Century. Many economists and investigative journalists have contributed to this new volume. Visit the Center for Research on Globalization website at www.globalresearch.ca. That's globalresearch.ca. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. And our new world order is about to begin. Are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now, if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what decides yourself for 
police. You dig me? 